Hello, everyone. This is Michael Jaco with Unleashing Intuition Secrets, the podcast. Join us as we reveal how you can become the master of your reality. Hello, everyone. It's Michael Jaco with Unleashing Intuition Secrets. So I have some special guests today. Okay, you have the regular Scott Bennett, U.S. Army Army uh, Psychological Operations Officer, worked at U.S. Central Command's Joint Interagency Operations Center. And Mr. Bennett was assigned to terrorist threat financing and tasked with discovering terrorist financing networks, domestic and foreign instruments, bank accounts being used to fund Islamic terrorists, working with multiple U.S. and foreign military and government agencies. He also worked with U.S. Special Operations Command as a liaison officer at the State Department Coordinator for Counter counterterrorism office office uh prior to joining the army uh he served in the bush administration from 2003 2008 worked for booze allen hamilton and he's author of shell game a whistleblowing report and then also first time we have uh, a wonderful guest mr scott ritter and scott if i can find your information here <laughs> so it's covert <laughs> it's covert information that's right wow i just had it here hate when that happens. All right. I'm sorry, Scott, but can you introduce yourself? That's, that's lame, but. Uh, no, no, no problem. Um, <laughs> you know, my, my military background is a uh, United States Marine Corps. I was an intelligence officer. Um, and uh, I, I guess my, my resume is, you know, normal Marine Corps stuff in peacetime. Um, 1988, I was assigned to the on-site inspection agency, uh, which was tasked with implementing the intermediate nuclear forces treaty in the former Soviet Union. Basically, I spent uh, two and a half years outside of a Soviet ICBM factory uh, monitoring its production to make sure they weren't violating uh, the, the terms of the treaty. Uh, really good experience. Uh, when, when that ended, I uh, went back to the Marine Corps. Um, Iraq invaded Kuwait. I got caught up in the Desert Shield, Desert Storm. Ended up in uh, Riyadh working uh, uh, on the staff, the intelligence staff uh, under General Schwarzkopf. Got heavily involved in the counter-scud. Uh, effort, spent some time with, uh, with, with the fast attack vehicle uh, detachment, the SEAL FAB detachment, and then uh, uh, spent some time with uh, JSOC up at RR and worked with the Air Force all trying to knock these scuds out before they fired against Israel or Gulf. We didn't do a good job. We tried, but we didn't kill any. Um, war ended, had what they call a good war, meaning I didn't get killed and I performed fairly well. Um, but I decided it was time to get out of the Marine Corps. Uh, I joined the Marine Corps to kill Russians, frankly speaking. And the Cold War was over and that allure was gone. All the good jobs that I wanted to do in the Marine Corps no longer existed. Um, but I wasn't able to get my traction in civilian life because uh, as God, Al Pacino got for, whenever I tried to get out, they just kept dragging me back in. And uh, I got a phone call in August of 91 uh, uh, by a colonel from a colonel that I worked for in the Soviet Union. Um, he invited me to the United Nations to set up an intelligence unit. Um, by that time, uh, the Iraqis were about four months in the line and cheating their way through their obligation to disarm. And uh, the United Nations uh, started out as a gentleman's agreement. We've, uh, they quickly figured out they needed uh, to be a little bit more uh, realistic in their approach. So I was tasked with building an intelligence unit. And then later on, uh, that turned into sort of an intelligence slap op slash operations unit. Um, I, it was a unique position, especially for somebody as young as I was. I um, was basically 
the director of intelligence for the world. And uh, when it came to Iraq, I would travel the world, meet with senior intelligence officials in all the capitals, like liaise with MI6, the Israeli Amman, the German intelligence, French intelligence, Dutch intelligence, you name it, I did it. Uh, all in an effort to gather information that we could then uh, use to conduct inspections, which I would lead. Uh, so I, I, I ran the entire intelligence uh, cycle. Uh, I collected, I assessed, um, I liaisoned, I went out in the field, I acted on it, got new information, came back, started all over again. I did that for seven years. Um, I finally left in 1988, um, not because we accomplished our mission, but because we were being prevented from accomplishing our mission. Um, we, had, we had disarmed about 90, 95% of Iraq's WMD. Uh, the stuff we couldn't account for, we, we could mitigate against by saying, hey, look, we're monitoring the totality of their industrial infrastructure and they weren't producing anything new. And the stuff we couldn't account for all had a life a shelf life that had expired years ago. So, um, but we needed to get to 100%. That's what the Security Council said. The United States uh, took advantage of the aggressive nature of the inspections I led to use them not to disarm Iraq, but hunt down Saddam Hussein, gather intelligence about how to kill him. Um, and I said, I couldn't be part of that. Uh, my job was to disarm Iraq, not to get rid of Saddam. If you wanted me to get rid of Saddam, then you tell me your job is to get rid of Saddam. But if you tell me my job is to disarm, then you gotta let me do the job. They didn't, I resigned uh, and the rest is history. I've been um, critical of US uh, foreign policy and uh, national security policy where it needs to be. I'm a loyal American. I support my country where it needs to be supported, but I'm somebody who believes firmly that the oath I took is not to any president or presidential administration, but to the constitution of the United States of America and uh, that adherence to the principles that are enshrined in that document is an absolute requirement. And uh, you don't lie to the American people about critical subjects related to the national security of the United States. And so I wasn't going to lie about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Very nice. Mike, very if nice. I could augment that real brief, if, if Scott Ritter had been in the position of making foreign policy in the CIA, for example, in the 1990s, in the early days after Reagan had opened the door and there was such a tremendous opportunity, if Scott Ritter had been in the key position of the CIA helping uh, direct the new American policy towards Russia, we would have an entirely different, happier, healthier, more peaceful world today than we do. We would have Russia much more uh, 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 friendly, at least uh, peaceful and collaborating with us than, than we do. And I, I, you know, I, I've talked with Scott many a time and his experience, CIA and yours and, and mine, there's an interesting parallel of betrayal that the agency does, but it's remarkable how we went down the bad, the wrong path of dismemberment, cannibalization of Russia in the 1990s. And everything that we're suffering now is are the seeds that we sowed in the 1990s. And I just wanted to say Scott Ritter represented a great opportunity to change in a different direction. And the powers that be uh, chose the path of, of death and cannibalization and vampire policies against Russia rather than uh, an opportunity for friendship and love and peace and, and uh, uh, you know, interaction. And it's, it's a very sad, sad reflection on just how betrayed we were by our, by our own people in government and the intelligence agencies. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And uh, that's, we're going to get a little bit into that uh, before you came on, Mr. Ritter and I were talking. And I, I remember before, you know, we did the uh, Iraq invasion, 
that he was basically at the border saying, don't go, you know, it's, it's all, it's all bullshit. <laughs> and I was like, who is this crazy guy? And uh, then I went in and I was part of the, eventually part of the CIA uh, invest team investigating for weapons of mass destruction. We didn't, never found them. We thought they went uh, with Soviet help into Syria, which, you know, they do have chemical weapons. So maybe. Um, so I, I remember talking to the chief of station after I finished that job and they basically closed that out. Uh, I was detective detail for the chief of station. We used to have some really interesting conversations. He had been in Iraq for a long time, many years before that, planning for this invasion. And he told me, he said, and he was getting ready to go uh, on one, one of our excursions to talk to the military generals. And he said that they had taken all of his recommendations. He said everything was falling apart in Iraq because they weren't following his recommendations. The, the, what the CIA, the good CIA, had put together. And uh, they were just throwing it out and, and doing their own program. Uh, and like you're saying, that's kind of what happened. So Saddam Hussein was an ally with Russia. Syria, ally with Russia. Look how we are coming after all of these different countries that are allies of Russia. Let's, let's, talk, to, let's talk about that. Mr. Ritter, you're obviously perfectly, uh, I think you spent some time in Russia uh, at one time, didn't you? Yeah, it was called the Soviet Union back then, but yeah. <laughs> exactly. I'm giving away my age. <laughs> <laughs> so what what are your thoughts on that as far as like, you know, we're, you know, Trump, you know, Russia collusion. It's just, just on and on and on. It's some kind of deep state, uh, you know, type of, uh, you know, thing is going on that's basically trying to destroy every everything the good people like ourselves, you know, have tried to, uh, you know, stop out. And and uh, what what's going on with that? What are your thoughts on that? Well, one of the big things I'd like to point out, first of all, I'm, I'm, I'm not here to sing the praises of Russia. Um, right. You know, I, I, I have deep respect for Russians. I respect I, I studied their culture, their history, their language. I'm not a very good linguist, but, um, you know, I, I, I make an effort. And um, so I respect. Them. But I also understand that, the, you know, our two nations have some disagreements, uh, that they have an intelligence service that has a job to do. And uh, as Americans, our job is to uh, not let them do their job when it comes to us. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm not sitting here pretending that the world is perfect and the, the Russians are, you know, angelic. Not at all. But what I will say is that we have a tendency in the United States to mirror image, project onto others that which we do. And our own fears and our own, uh, you know, our own ignorance, et cetera, we tend to project on them. So, you know, in Iraq, for instance, um, <laughs> we were talking about how to smuggle stuff out of Iraq. And what we ended up doing in these uh, brainstorms was basically replicating, um, you know, existing CIA covert plans to smuggle things into Iraq. Uh, I mean, it, you know, reverse engineering it. Uh, so it, it wasn't as though we were thinking like Iraqis. We ended up thinking like ourselves, doing you know, doing unto them what we do unto others kind of stuff. And I bring that up because there's a lot of analysis out there about Russia that's just dead wrong, plain wrong. Mm -hmm. um, again, I don't, I'm not here to say that they're innocent, that they don't have any, you know, uh, motives that we would find to be maligned towards us. They do. Um, I'm sure they want to spy on us every much as we want to spy on them, that they want to get the goods on the B-21 bomber and, you know, the new Columbus class uh, submarine launch or the submarine and, and things of that nature. Good. Um, we're doing the same. That's called the real world. But 
But you talk about Syria. One thing I know about the Russians and the Soviets before them is they take nonproliferation dead seriously. And that when they enter into a treaty relationship, um, they seek to honor it. They aren't like we are, where we violate every treaty that we sign. And I can say that with a statement of near certainty. Um, I, I mean, I'm not going to give away too much here, but uh, before I left the Marine Corps, my last job um, on, on active duty was um, I was the, 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 the counterintelligence guy for START Treaty Implementation. This is the Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty. Um, and my job was to uh, working out of uh, Salt Lake City, Utah, to go to Hill Air Force Base, go up to Morton Fire Call, where they produced the, uh, the, the Peacekeeper missile and the small ICBM at that time. Um, and then down to Hercules, where they were doing uh, uh, you know, uh, other solid rocket motor work and evaluate these facilities from the standpoint of what the Soviets would see when they inspected. Because I had served as an inspector, so I was basically red teaming this. And um, I'd go on to uh, the Hill Air Force Base and I'd go into these storage areas and I'd say, uh, what's this? They said, oh, don't worry, that won't be here when the, when the Soviets come. I said, well, why not? Oh, well, those are uh, those are uh, Minuteman uh, uh, booster stages, but uh, we're not declaring those. I said, but we have to declare them. Oh no, no, we've re we're reclassifying them because they're going to be used as uh, as as uh, interceptor. Um, you know, uh, we're going to use them to create this model of an of a enemy missile interceptor. And I said, well, wait a minute. If you use that booster, the range you're talking about is within the limits of the INF treaty. Well, yeah, yeah, but it's just a, it's just just a target. I said, no, it's a missile. You're violating the INF treaty and you're violating the START treaty. And right about that time, I got the letter disinviting me to the game, um, yeah. because you know we we don't play fair. We 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 don't we 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 simply cheat and lie all the time. Um, whereas the Russians, I'm not. You know, look, we know, for instance, in the SALT treaty, uh, they had this missile called the SS-16. It was a road missile, road road. Uh, road mobile missile and they they promised not to produce it well they did they produced about 100 of them and they kept them in covert storage so they're not pure either we know that but they have been better uh at because the salt treaty wasn't uh like the start or strategic reduction treaty there was no inspections etc it was all satellite driven once you had inspectors on the ground the, the russians played fair they played straight up uh and they're also serious about their international obligations, which gets me to the point about would Russia assist Iraq in moving chemical weapons to Syria? Let me put it this way. When I was at the United Nations um, in 1992, I had the uh, KGB, at that time it's called the SVR, um, bring the complete files of the Russian Def Ministry of Defense um, deliveries to Iraq. The whole files, they brought it to the Soviet mission, put it down in the basement, and I would be escorted in and given complete access. And they brought a team of experts who sat there and watched me go through the documents. And whenever I had a question, I would ask them the question. They would give me the answer. They would guide me to the document. That and the reason why I bring that up is, why would they go through all that? Only to help Iraq smuggle chemical weapons out of, uh, out of, out, out of Iraq. You know, they, they sent guys in on my team uh, who risked their lives to look for chemical weapons. Uh, you know, guys who were wearing the full protective gear 
Uh, one mistake, they're dead. Uh, guys who suffered through the same crap I suffered through, um, you know, going up to a facility, having a guy put a machine gun in your face, throw up, threaten to blow your brains out kind of stuff. Um, why would Russia do this? Only to, at the end, say, oh, no, here, we're going we're gonna to help you smuggle weapons out. You know, if Russia knew that there were weapons, I guarantee you they would have told me where those weapons were and I would have gone in and found them. Russia didn't know there were weapons. Russia was helping me look for the weapons. Um, so I, I have a little bit of problem with the idea that they were going to use. Plus, I also have a problem with Iraq having quantifiable uh, amounts of weaponized chemical agent. With all due respect to the CIA, Task Force 120, and all those other guys running around there, um, they knew damn well Iraq didn't have any weapons of mass destruction. Want to know why the CIA knew? Because I knew everything CIA knew. I was in the CIA. I was working with the CIA. Uh, you know, we had a symbiotic relationship. Um, there was nothing. I mean, there might have been some details in terms of, you know, the names of a specific human source. But I knew what the human source knew. I knew more than what the I knew the total limitations of the CIA's human collection in Iraq because they had no viable human collection in Iraq. Um, it was all wiped out in 1996 when the CIA tried to use my inspection team to assassinate Saddam Hussein. Um, I mean, so it's, it's, it's this kind of stuff. I mean, I, I was like this with um, what they call the special activities. Um, you know, and, and the, you know, when I, when I went to Israel, I, I worked with the CIA station chief. When I went to Jordan, I worked with the CIA station chief there. Um, you know, so the idea that somehow the CIA was sitting on this trove of really cool information and not sharing it with me, who was the tip of the spear going into Iraq to find this stuff is, is absurd. You know, the CIA took advantage of what we had to offer. Um, you know, one of the things I did was bring in a covert SIGINT team into Iraq. Uh, we, we intercepted Saddam Hussein's personal communications. Now, I did it not to hunt down and kill Saddam, but to find out if his bodyguards were still in the business of coordinating the movement of weapons of mass destruction. Hmm. The CIA wasn't mature enough, though. They liked to use that to kill Saddam, even though they promised not to do that. You know, one thing I learned about the CIA is when their lips move, they're lying, uh, especially the DO guys. The, the DI guys are okay, but the DI guys disgrace themselves too. And, that you know, when I was working the Russian target, the Soviet target, you had guys in what they used to call the Office of Imagery Assessment, OIA. It's a CIA uh, version of NPIC, the, uh, the Imagery uh, Center. These, these guys had been working for 20, 25, 30 years, the same target. I mean, if a mouse pooped in the grass, they knew it. They went, oh, mouse pooped in the grass. I'll tell you what the mouse was. I'm joking about this. That, but I mean, they, they had a good feel for that. But then the CIA, after the Cold War, they said, well, we're going to go to the, um, what was it called, the, the peace dividend. Or, you know, we're and so what they did is they got rid of all duplication. So because we had NPIC in the Navy Yard, we couldn't have OIA in the CIA. We couldn't have any other of this imagery analysis. So they got rid of it all. And then the other thing they did is they said, um, we're no longer to allow somebody to sit in the desk and have a career there. We, you, you need to go in and there needs to be diversification. You need to become a jack of all trades instead of a master of one. Um, and that's fine, except that the people that were starting to analyze, an, analyze the imagery didn't know what they were looking at. I was in a briefing and the CIA team came in, started throwing up slides from the U-2 aircraft that I, that I tasked, by the way. So, I mean, I'm always sitting there going, we've got this picture. I said, I know, Dibt. I know uh, I asked you on that one. You know, I'm the one who told you to take the picture. 
And there's a reason why, but you go ahead and tell me why you took the picture, since you obviously didn't read the tasking order. Um, well, there's a suspicious crane here. And, a, and I said, did you read anything we wrote when we were in there? Well, no, we don't have access to that. But if you read it, you'd find out that we were on that site the day before that picture was taken. And that crane isn't suspicious. We know exactly what it's doing. There was rain, a flood washed out the wall. The crane is moving concrete in there. There's nothing suspicious about it. And all the things you say are this, they aren't that, they're this. It's written down, we were there. So an analyst who is on the job for six months and then gets transferred away to another target isn't an analyst. He's a placeholder. And that, you know, that's that's where we're at. But long way of saying that we, we, we're not very good at what we do anymore. Um, it's, it's very slipshod. And we project on the countries that which we do ourselves. Syria. Bashar al-Assad is a dentist who didn't want to be president. That's right. <laughs> and if anybody takes a look at his history, they'll know that, you know, he didn't, he, he wasn't raised to be a dictator. He just wanted to be a damn dentist. Then his brother dies in a car accident and he's thrown into this situation. And then his father dies. And suddenly he has to deal with this Lebanese Syrian quagmire, this den of corruption and special interests and all that. First thing he did is go into Lebanon and say, you're fired, you're fired, you're fired, you're fired. Fired them all because he got tired of, you know, reading about the drug smuggling, the human trafficking, and all the corruption that was taking place. Shut it down. The second thing that happened is people came up to him and said, they're going to kill you. You can't change this quickly. So he wanting to turn Syria into a viable democracy, not a perfect democracy. Is there such a thing? But um, a viable democracy had to proceed slowly. And he was trying his best. Unfortunately for him, I think around 2006, there was this drought that came in. And I mean, there's not much a president could do when it ain't raining. And the crops aren't growing. Uh, the, the, the farmers are being forced to leave their farms and go to the rural areas. The, the Syrian government falls down on the job in terms of providing support to them. And what happens is the Saudis come in with their money, which is attached to Wahhabist fundamentalist ideology. And they go into these villages and they build mosques and they insert a Wahhabist who then builds up on the uh, unrest. And next thing you know, in 2011, there's this, this, this unrest, but where'd it come from? Sure, there were people who were genuinely upset with the way the Syrian government was functioning. So was Assad. He was frustrated. He didn't like this. Um, but the CIA, I mean, there was a, the CIA and the State Department had this, uh, this thing they called digital democracy. Um, and there was a guy who ran it who went on to, to Google, last name I think was Cohen, but I might be wrong on this. But his whole thing was that they're going to train the youth to use cell phones, to use social media apps, Facebook, Twitter, et cetera, uses a vehicle of mobilization. And they can mobilize and then they take the videos and they put the videos on the internet and they generate perception. And that's what we did in Syria. We created the perception that uh, Assad was this brutal dictator crack, cracking down. Uh, when the Russians came in in 2015, they were killing every baby in, 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 in Syria, apparently, uh, when they weren't raping women. Um, of course, that's not what they were doing. They went in there very professional, and one only needs to look at the results. 2015 went in, 2019 won the war. I mean, they you know they didn't win the war in terms of evicting the United States, but they stabilized it. ISIS was destroyed. Um, you know, Al Qaeda was on the run. They freed up the whole space around Damascus. Assad was firmly entrenched in power. Um, 
you know, but here in the United States, we can't accept that because, of course, the CIA had uh, Operation Timber, Sycamore, Sycamore Timber, something like that. Sycamore Timber. Um, but, timber you know, yeah, basically providing billions of dollars <laughs> to fund ISIS, Al-Qaeda, and the so-called Free Syrian Army. Uh, All to part of Lloyd Austin's little group. Lloyd yeah, Austin is up there teaching them. You had 4,000. How many have left? Uh, I think we have four. Yeah, they lost one. My point is, we, we project that on them. You know, Libya, you know, say what you want about Gaddafi. He was crazy as a loon. Crazy as a loon. But look at the quality of life in Libya. Yes. Look at yes. the way they lived. Look at look at the infrastructure development he had going there. Um, and look at the fact that he voluntarily gave up his weapons of mass destruction yeah. on the promise that if he did that, he would be brought back into the team. No, the only team he got was a bayonet up the butt and uh, mm-hmm. and death. And now look at Libya, totally annihilated, wiped yeah. out. Yeah. And we can go on and on and on. on, wow, on you this. are just crushing it. My God, I have been on the other side of this trying to figure this stuff out. And you just went through boom, 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 boom. Just stuff I've been looking at for 20 years trying to figure out. You just like crushed so many things with that commentary. Oh, my God. So. Mr. Bennett, what, what's your... Well, just, uh, let me just add something. That's yeah, yeah, please. A very accurate assessment. Qatar was... Uh, Qatar had a whole stage set up to look like Tripoli uh, in Qatar, pretending that you had all this uprising in Libya. So Qatar and the Wahhabists and, of course, the CIA were actively uh, generating perception uh, in the in the Libyan overthrow operations, I had friends of mine that were uh, oil people at the time. They were friends with the tribes. The FBI, the CIA came against them. James and Joanne Moriarty. James was killed uh, a few years ago, assassinated. Um, but that's another story. But I, one thing that they did in Libya with Qatar and pretending, uh, you know, that having these parades, it was all theatrics. It was all filmed. The same thing I would say they're doing in Iran. They are filming operations and disgruntled people mm-hmm. pretending that it's actually going. Because I know people in Iran. I was in Iran. I, I, I know a lot of people there. Yeah. And they were actually helping in Syria, too, fighting the Wahhabis. Senator Dick Black was there, met with Bashar Assad. So was Tulsi Gabbard. Senator Black, a close friend of mine, uh, you know, knows everything about uh, what was going on in, the, in the Syria. But I would say the same perception manipulations are going on uh, uh, with the CIA and such targeting Iran because they are trying to do a regime change that the West lacking of hegemony, the dissolution, the disintegration of the West hegemony, I think is fueling this very dangerous, hysterical, childlike tantrum, rage and incompetence in the U.S. government. And I was on a press TV interview last night and I talked about Saudi Arabia is divorcing the, U- the U.S. and trying to marry Russia. It does create some interesting opportunities because Russia needs both Saudi Arabia and Iran. So Iran and Saudi Arabia could be forced like Mother Russia saying, OK, you kids got to play nice because this is the new multipolar world that we're trying to generate. We can't have all this, you know, disruptions like we've had in the past. So all of these nations are doing a uh, musical chairs uh, reorientation. And you've got Russia, you've got Iran, you've got Saudi Arabia shifting away. Are they going to try and do an assassination of Mohammed bin Salman and do a coup d'etat in Saudi Arabia because they're pissed off? Possibly. Mm. And of course, Ukraine and Russia, Russia and Scott knows better than anyone, Russia is going to finish this up in a matter of weeks. 
then you've got Europe completely. And we said this, you know, months and months ago, all of us on different platforms, the entire European Union continent is dissolving into political unrest, revolution. And I perceive in the spring, you're going to have all of these former leaders hanging by piano wire like Mussolini did uh, and a new, uh, a new uh, political identity starting to rise up. And you could have a lot of chaos, too, because of all the immigrants that have come into Europe, as we have in the United States from Africa and the Middle East up into Europe. When there's a financial collapse, an energy collapse, what are they going to do? They're going to devolve into certain elements of, of unrest and other things. So Europe and our destruction of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, you're going to see, I would predict, Hitlerian personalities rising up in Germany saying, we should have nothing to do with the United States because these bastards have, have like, I love this. I have to give credit to Scott. He nailed this. This is one of the great political sociological slogans ever invented. Uh, Germany is Nancy Kerrigan and the United States is Tanya Harding. <laughs> that was excellent. Now, uh, this this will lead us into uh, Ukraine. And uh, Mr. Ritter, you've done a good job of analyzing that and saying that the Russians didn't have enough people there and they're probably going to have to put more people in there and then they're going to like take, take the country. So I think we're moving in that direction. Tulsi Gabbard, Tulsi Gabbard. Yeah, she was in your uh, division. Same division, right? Uh, so that's interesting. So Tulsi Gabbard, what she came out very early on and talked about uh, the bioweapons labs that the Russians had targeted when they came into uh, Russia. Go ahead. Could I say one thing on that? Absolutely. The documentary on the chemical biological labs in Ukraine, we did on RT death factories in 2020. Wow. 2020, April, April, March, April, May of 2020 death factories and there's been two parts there's a third part coming up the russians knew in 2020 everything that was going on in ukraine with the biochemical labs they've linked it covid19 they've linked it to the project on, on uh, project 201 bill and melinda gates they've linked it to the soros foundation the clinton foundation usaid cia they've linked it to patel to pfizer to moderna they've linked it to uh, cdc they've linked it to fort detrick they've linked that fort detrick to wuhan and they've linked all of this as the united states biochemical labs in ukraine were responsible for the covid-19 as well as the vaccine why is this a population reduction is this a bioweapon did they unleash this in china with ambitions against iran with against iraq they did release it in iran too a very severe strain and why were they targeting russian slavic dna so uh, that's the biochemical labs in Ukraine, I think, are directly, can be directly linked to uh, COVID-19, the vaccine. And the Russians have presented, and I'm not a Russian sympathizer either. I stand, you know, on the same level Scott Ritter does. But we're presenting the facts, and the Russia, has, Russia has presented all the evidence, all the documents, all the testimony that they've acquired since 2020 to the United Nations as a, uh, as a crime against humanity. And that act on this play, this stage, is yet to unfold. Wow. Incredible reveals, gentlemen. So, uh, yeah, Ukraine. So, well, we did have a regime change, uh, and then they basically pulled that away, came into the sphere of the United States. Uh, they tried to do that in Syria, didn't work out. So that's kind of like in limbo there. They did it in, uh, with Saddam Hussein in Iraq. Maybe there's a showdown like you're talking about, Mr. Bennett, in Saudi Arabia, who is basically, it seems like they're aligning with Russia. So, Obviously, United States and NATO does not like that. Uh, they're anti-Russian. They want to destroy Russia. 
what what are your thoughts on that, Mr. Ritter? Well, I mean, you know, we've been trying to destroy Russia since the end of the Cold War. When, um, when the Soviet Union went away, we stopped fearing and respecting the Soviet Union, and we started um, belittling and um, abusing Russia. Um, you know, the, the, the policy of the United States in the 1990s was not to help Russia get back up, but to keep Russia down. We did so economically by empowering entire classes of the so-called oligarchs who uh, economically exploited Russia for the benefit of the West, Western companies and themselves becoming billionaires in the process. Uh, we we um, neutered Russia politically by pretending to put in democracy under Boris Yeltsin. But I don't know, the last time I looked up democracy in a dictionary, I, I didn't expect to see uh, a Russian T-72 tank outside of the parliament in October of 1993, firing high explosive rounds and to kill, um, you know, the, uh, the, the, the elected representatives of the people who disagreed with Boris Yeltsin's policy. That's not high on my definition of um, democracy. There was no democracy in, uh, in, in, in Russia. And, you know, we talk about the 2016 election and uh, the allegations of how the Russians stole that election from Trump. Um, Pretty much every single one of those allegations has been disproven by this time, uh, from Christopher Seals made up dossier to, um, you know, crowd strikes made up hack. Um, but you know what was it made up? The efforts by the United States in 1996 to buy an election in Russia, where we literally stole an election to keep Boris Yeltsin in power so we could continue the program of economically devastating Russia and politically neutering uh, Russia. Um, that was our goal. That was our objective. You know, a lot of um, uh, Russian historians today basically say that if Yeltsin had lived another year or two, there wouldn't have been a Russia. It would have broken up into its uh, various components. There would have been a Far East Republic. There would have been a smaller Russian Federation. There would have been smaller Russian Republic. And that was the goal of the United States, because by doing that, you will keep Russia forever weak. You don't want this big Russian Federation with all of its great potential. You want to break it up. But Yeltsin was very unhealthy, and um, he, he stepped down, and he empowered this guy named Vladimir Putin, who came in and said, I'm not playing that game. Um, and he, that just irritated the United States to no end. We didn't know what to make of Vladimir Putin for a long time. Um, but by 2007, when he spoke at the Munich Security Conference, one of the great speeches of all times, I strongly encourage anybody listening to this to go Google it, um, listen not just to the speech but more importantly the question and answer period where he takes the questions from a very concerned and disturbed uh, western elite and he just hits home run after home run after home run look at john mccain in his seat <laughs> he's not comfortable at all um but you know by that time it was clear that putin wasn't going to play the game we made a decision that the best way to disenfranchise russia was to carve out ukraine and in 2008, we invited Ukraine to come join NATO. Um, what's important about the 2008 invitation is the Russian reaction. Now, what do we know about the Russian reaction? Why don't we ask William Burns, who at the time was the ambassador to Russia from the United States, senior most diplomat in Russia. Today, he's the director of the CIA, by the way. But uh, William Burns, in, in, in February 2009, wrote a memorandum called, Net means net, no means no. What he meant is the Russians will not allow Ukraine ever to go to NATO, ever, under no circumstances. It's a red line. 
And if we continue to push this, he wrote, Russia will invade Ukraine, will take Crimea and take the Donbass. This was written in 2009. We knew damn well what was going to happen if we continue this policy, but we continued it anyways. In 2009, the other thing that happened is uh, Barack Obama became president. And he had a guy named Michael McFaul on his staff at the National Security Council, Russia guy. And McFaul came up with a cute way of uh, a new name for regime change. You see, the goal of the United States was to get rid of Vladimir Putin. When Vladimir Putin addressed the Munich Security Council, we knew right then we could not allow him to stay in power. And because we're the United States, we are, of course, uniquely empowered by somebody, maybe God, to determine who gets to rule other countries. And we made a determination that Vladimir Putin could not be allowed to continue to rule in Russia, but we needed to get rid of him. But instead of calling it regime change, we call it the Russia reset. Remember the little red button in the yellow box and we and, 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 and Hillary Clinton sort of awkwardly came up to Sergei Lavrov and said, push the button, but it's spelled wrong and Lavrov corrected her and he pushed it and all that stuff. The goal of that was to empower Dmitry Medvedev, who had been the prime minister, but because Putin was limited to two terms, consecutive terms constitutionally, in 2008, he had to do a swap. So he went over and became prime minister, and the prime minister became president. It was supposed to be a deal for a year, four-year term, and then they'd switch back and Putin become president again. Um, well, we, went, we went to Medvedev and we said, hey, why don't you stay president? You are the man now. You're the president, and keep Putin the hell out of there. And Medvedev sort of thought about it for a while, but eventually he said no. Um, you want to talk about interference in politics? How about this? In 2011, once it became clear that Medvedev wasn't going to play ball, um, a guy named Joe Biden, vice president of the United States, flew to Moscow, and he met with all of the Russian opposition that the CIA had bought and paid for, and they were all met in one room, and he said the following, Vladimir Putin should not consider running for re-election. It would be bad for Vladimir Putin, and it would wow. be bad for Russia. Could you imagine the Russian vice president flying to the United States and during a presidential election and saying, I don't know, Joe Biden should not consider running for re-election. It'll be bad for Joe Biden. It'll be bad for him. What would we do? We'd throw the bomb out. We'd say, get the hell out of here. You can't, you know, interference. This is insane. But that's what Biden did. Putin told him the pound sand, stick it where the sun don't shine. He ended up getting reelected. At that point in time, we've been engaged in regime change since then. 2014, you mentioned it. The Maidan coup or revolution was a CIA-backed coup d'etat that empowered a group called the Organization OUN, Ukrainian Nationalism-B for Bandera. Stepan Bandera, the neo-Nazi yeah, thug no, 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 no. who slaughtered tens of thousands of Jews and hundreds of thousands of Poles and Russians during World War II. Uh, in 1945, he became a paid asset of the OSS, later to become the CIA, who controlled this organization up until 1990, controlled them in the, on the ground in Ukraine, and then we continued to fund them as an expatriate political entity. In 2014, we go back to them and say, hey, Remember, we used to pay you. We're going to pay you again. Rise back up. Come in. Remove Viktor Yanukovych. Seize power. Disable or, or, or destabilize Russia. Long story short, they did that. Russia took uh, objection. They took Crimea, as uh, William Burns promised they would. And then they spent eight years trying to convince Ukrainians not to let them take Donbass. And what I mean by that is when, the, when these thugs went out, you know, they carried out policies to Russians that are genocidal in nature. 
in May of 2014, they went to the city of Odessa, which is a primarily Russian city, and they terrorized the Russian population. They surrounded 150 people, stuffed them into a Ministry of Trade and Culture building, set it on fire, and then cheered as 84 people burned to death. That's the quality of people we're talking about. Then they went to Mariupol. You might remember that town because of the heavy fighting there. These Nazis went in there, raped, murdered, tortured, and, and intimidated the Russian population so much that the Russian population rose up and said, no more. We won't allow it. They held a referendum. They said, Russia, we want to join Russia. What did Putin say? Remember, Putin, who, who only has territory acquisition on his mind, Putin said, no. He said, you're Ukraine. You will stay part of Ukraine. We will work to guarantee your rights, but you, you're not coming to Russia. That, that's, not the, that, that's not what international law allows. You're staying Ukraine. Mm. They, they entered the Minsk Agreement, which was a an arrangement between France and Germany, Ukraine, with Russia monitoring, where the Ukrainians promised to do something. For eight years, they did nothing except shell the Russians, killing 14,000 of them. Long story short, after giving the United States and the world every opportunity to implement Minsk, after making every effort to reach out and try and come up with a European security framework that would stabilize the area to keep Ukraine out of NATO, all oh, they wanted to keep Ukraine out of NATO, sign the Minsk Accords make life okay for the Russians, and then we're done. We wouldn't play any of that. Two things, two statements from the former Ukrainian president, uh, Peter Poroshenko. One, Ukrainian children will go to school while the Russian children the Donbass will cower in basements while we shell them. Nice guy, right? Uh, the second statement, the Minsk Accords was a sham. We never intended to implement it. We only did the Minsk Accords to buy time so NATO could train our military so that we could forcibly retake the Crimea and the Donbass. It was all a sham. Russia, yes, launched their special military operation on February 24th of this year. Um, and people say it was, you know, unprovoked act of aggression. If you know anything about the historical buildup to it, you realize it was the measure of last resort. Russia had literally exhausted every venue short of war to resolve the situation and only went to war when it's absolutely necessary. And there's 150,000 NATO trained Ukrainian stormtroopers ready to attack the Donbass. Russia launched a preemptive attack citing Article 51 of the United Nations Charter, preemptive self-defense, using the same formula, by the way, because everybody said, oh no, you can't use Article 51. And Russia's like, Wait a minute, in 1999, didn't the United States and NATO use the exact same formulation I'm talking about to, uh, to, attack, Syria, uh, to, to attack, attack Serbia and then carve away Kosovo? So why is it good for you? But when we do the same thing, we're suddenly the worst people on the face of the earth. Wow. Let me add one thing. In 2013, Yanukovych's government had declared to the United States they wanted all of these biochemical labs removed from Ukraine. And that was another impetus to the West to overthrow Yanukovych and replace him with Poroshenko because those biochemical labs were part of their arsenal for corroding uh, through bio, bioterrorism weapons, uh, Russia, with, with uh, uh, diseases and plagues that they were experimenting with to load into airborne uh, uh, geese and ducks that would fly into areas and, and engage in uh, spreading of diseases and such. But Yanukovych's government wanted all those biochemical labs removed from Ukraine. And that was another reason that they overthrew them. Yeah. So we're, we're, what I've seen, it looks like NATO's already involved with personnel in this, this war. 
looks like there's special operations uh, types that are in there, probably ground branch from the CIA, uh, still doing training. I'm sure they've been doing it all along. Uh, probably same thing with the special forces guys. Um, I think it might be quite a, quite a few actually are sneaking in there. Uh, what, what are your thoughts on that, Mr. Ritter? Hello, this is Michael Jaco. If you want to learn more on how to unleash your own intuition, go to michaelkjaco.com, unleashingintuition.com, where you can find my courses on how to become the master of your own reality. I have to be careful. Um, yeah. yeah. I, I, I mean, not because I have access to any classified information. I don't. But because yeah. I don't want to do anything that, that puts anybody at risk. Yeah. What, what I believe is that the CIA has some ground branch people and some specialists assigned to ground branch who are in Ukraine, um, not so much as trainers, but facilitators. Um, facilitators of um, communication, strategic communications, um, facilitators of uh, logistics. Um, the big thing right now for NATO, the big mission is to get these troops and this equipment, the troops that are being trained and the equipment that's being provided over the border in Ukraine and to the front line without being destroyed by the Russians. And so this is a giant rat line. The CIA is pretty good at rat lines. Mm -hmm. And um, so I think the CIA is doing that. And I think they're being supplemented on a rotational basis by some JSOC types uh, who... Um, are sheep dipped or whatever the term is nowadays where they are operating under the, uh, the code that, you know, just like we did with the seals going in to kill bin Laden, they became CIA for a day. Um, so when they're in the country, I think they're operating under the, the, you know, title 50 or whatever it is that allows the CIA to do things, but they are also there and they're managing the, you know, they move the warehouses around based upon intelligence on where Russian satellites are, Russian capabilities, and they move it around. They find the seam in Russian, uh, and Russian detection capabilities, Russian interdiction capabilities. And, and it's a constantly moving thing, meaning that it changes day by day as the Russians change. And so you need a guy who's very good at receiving new information and acting on it. You couldn't do this with a Ukrainian intermediary because they'd be too slow. You'd be, the lag would be too long and you'd end up staying in place too long and the Russians would interdict it. So I think these guys are in there overseeing this logistics. Um, and they've been very successful. I mean, whatever you want to say about about these guys and you know the policies that they're implementing, that's one thing. But never question their professionalism. These guys are in there doing a job. They're doing it well. Um, and the stuff's getting to the front lines. I also think that there's a new category of player here. Um, and it, I think we saw some of it in Iraq. You might know better than I. Um, but when we when we talk about you know the the um, private military contractors. Right. Yep. Um, there's a term that was used uh, that, that it's used. It's um, executive protection, I think, is the, the term. And that's sort of a code word for people with a certain set of skills. Right. You know, this is uh, who's that actor? You know, I have a certain set of skills taken Liam Neeson. Um, you know, so there's guys with a certain set of skills that are that are needed, but you can't you have to be careful how you advertise it. So it's advertises for, you know, executive protection. Uh, but these guys are going in and they are doing things right behind the battlefield. And it's replicating a model 
that we saw in Iraq and in Syria in the later stages of the ISIS fight, where you had uh, JSOC teams and SEAL teams um, who had the uh, these these iPads, these, and they would give these iPads to the forward Iraqi units or later the forward Syrian units, and they'd get the intelligence, then they'd give that intelligence to the forward guys, and then they'd coordinate the battlefield from where they were in the rear. That's happening, I believe, um, and it's not just me believing. The Ukrainians have some OPSEC issues, and they have, have some guys talking about this, maybe when they shouldn't have been talking about it. Uh, but they've, they've discussed the, the pads, the iPads. They've discussed receiving targeting data straight from a fusion cell operating in Poland. Um, and they talked about guys on the ground helping them. So, you know, this is how HIMARS is getting targeted properly. This is how the M777s are, are getting targeted. This is why the Russians, uh, you know, have, have to change the way they're doing business, because you can't stay static. If the Russians stay static, they die. Uh, their command posts are being hit. Their logistics are being hit. Um, it, it's been a game-changing technology, but this is being done with these executive protection kind of guys that are purely contractor. They're not they're not um, CIA contractor. They're not JSOC contractor. It's a fund of money uh, that has been set aside uh, to pay them. They're paid well. I mean, I don't know what these guys were getting paid in Iraq, but you know, this is two to four thousand dollars a day, um, you know, and, and and so that's that's pretty good money, at least where I come from. Maybe maybe other people are used to making more money than that, but for me, that's a lot of money, and um, and, and and that's what's happening. So I, I think we're, we're seeing that. Plus, what we're seeing now is, um, you know, the mercenaries that that, that came in, the pure mercenaries. Mm-hmm. And when this war first started, the the Ukrainians created something called the International Legion. And they attracted thousands of, uh, you know, volunteers. But these guys were all airsoft um, Reddit warriors, you know, Malcolm Nance types, uh, you know, buying brand new gear and posing with their beer bellies and their gray hair and all this stuff. Um, and they went in there and they died. Uh, they weren't very good. In fact, the Ukrainians took them out of the front lines because they were just, they, they, were, they were not, they were causing more harm than good. The guys they have now are a completely different breed. And these again are the, executive protection types. Um, you're familiar with foreign internal defense, that term? Uh, oh, yeah. Foreign, <laughs> yeah, FID. Okay, well, you know what happens when we go around the world and we do FID. We create a database of all the people we fitted. Absolutely. <laughs> and that database has names and skill sets and all this stuff. And then when we need them every once in a while, we call them up and they do things for us. Not necessarily directly for us, but indirectly. Um, a lot of these FID types are showing up together with some um, some guys that may have been, um, have an accelerated departure from active duty um, uh, in both the American, British, French, uh, some NATO armies, guys with specific skill sets, leadership uh, capabilities, et cetera. And they've come in and they've created these mobile direct action teams that are sort of the, um, the, the, the reconnaissance arm of the Ukrainians. These are the guys that are finding the seam in the Russian defense plowing through them with, you know, Humvees with, you know, all jacked up with, you know, grenade launchers and heavy machine guns. And they're knocking out command and control. They're knocking out logistics. And they're running around like the rat patrol. And then they come back. They're the guys that do the special reconnaissance missions, the direct action missions, um, stuff that the original guys could never do. This is a level of expertise that's beyond Ukraine. What happened to Ukrainians, they used to have very good special forces. But by July, they had suffered 80% casualties. Right. And, right. and you can't replace uh, a special operator in a couple months. <laughs> you know that. And right. so, you know, 
so now they, they brought in these guys who have the skill set and they know how to work in these units and they're very effective. They were very effective in Kharkov in the deep operations. Uh, they're, they're less effective in Kherson because uh, the problem is artillery doesn't really give a damn what your training level is. Um, it's, you know, a piece of 152 millimeter shrapnel will take off your, 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 your skull as quick as anything, whether you're trained or untrained. And so if you get caught in a bad situation, you die. And a lot of them are dying right now. Um, But the the thing is, this was a qualitative improvement in the Ukrainian uh, capabilities, especially that initial shock factor of the battle. And then they were backing them up with these battalions of guys who were wearing Ukrainian uniforms, Mm -hmm. but they spoke Polish. Entire battalions spoke Polish. And what the Poles were doing was basically calling in people saying, who all wants to become a Ukrainian for a month? And all the Polish soldiers went boom because they the Poles were giving them T seventy two tanks, but they were T seventy there were models the Ukrainians didn't use T seventy use they used T sixty fours modified versions so it's a different tank so rather than having the Ukrainians try to cross train, they said we need Polish tank crews volunteer haba 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 you're Ukrainian now go forth and and do this and the Russians you know, they're fighting them they're they're killing them they go through the bodies there's the Polish passport. Not a secret, but everybody's. But here's the danger, and then I'll I'll, I'll shut up because I know I just ramble. I apologize. Um, the they have complete units of poles in Ukraine um, creates the potential for the poles at some point in time, while these units are still in Ukraine, to turn them back into Polish units. And why is this important? Western Ukraine, Poland has aspirations for Western Ukraine, yep. and if they can get. Um, a dozen battalions already positioned, and then when the go, you know, the Russians are winning on the battlefield, they go, you're all of a sudden Poles, boom, and you present the Russians with a fait accompli, with basically a Polish takeover of Western Ukraine. Um, that complicates the situation and raises the stakes. But getting back to the original question, I believe there's heavy, heavy involvement, not just in country, but out of country. We know there's an intelligence fusion cell. There's one in uh, operating in, um, in in Poland. But as you know, and I know, um, we have limitations on, you know, let's just call it skiff type capabilities. Right. So there's only so much information that can be operated out of Poland. So we know in Ramstein or other places in Germany where we have longstanding NATO facilities that are already pre-configured to handle every code word imaginable. Mm-hmm. They're there. They're getting intelligence information real time from all the things we got. And then they're putting that product up to Poland, where they are interfacing with a joint cell with Ukrainian officers, and then that stuff's being sent direct to the front line to those those guys with the iPads and, and, and they're communicating. There's that taking place. Communications. The the Ukrainians wouldn't be functioning today communication wise if it weren't for Elon Musk and uh, Starlink. Uh, the, the that level of uh, of of satellite uh, interface is is a game changer for them. If they lost uh, Starlink right now, this is why I sort of laugh when I see what's going on in Twitter, because I'm like, you really think the United States is going to let Elon Musk shut down Starlink? That isn't going to happen because that's the end of the Ukrainians. All that communication that we're doing, we don't communicate with the Ukrainians in the field using our secure communications. We use it using commercial, just like uh, you're familiar with the Stu-3. All right. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, there. You know, when I was with the United Nations, we used the Motorola, yep. whatever the civilian equivalent was. It looked like it, but it didn't have quite the same encryption level. 
And that's the same thing with what's going on with Starlink. They've got the commercialized encryption, not the, the real stuff. But we do the communications, we do the logistics, we do the intelligence, and we do the command and control. The battle planning is being done by NATO. Um, so in effect, we're, we're fighting a war against Russia right now. We are literally fighting a war against Russia. We're just using a Ukrainian proxy. And here's the scary thing. We're not winning. Yep. I mean, we, we're winning some battles. Anybody who's fought a war knows that winning the battle is meaningless if you don't win the, uh, the, the campaign. And winning the campaign is meaningless if you don't win the war. Russia's in the process of winning this war. They have the momentum. They have the mass. They have every factor going for them. Ukraine's on the run. They just burned through all their reserves. They got no more reserves coming in. Um, they're going to burn through whatever's left of their strategic reserve right now in a desperate bid to take care of someone. But even then, what happens? You, let's say you take the city, you're not going to, but you take it, how do you hold it? Russia's in the business of taking apart your power grid, taking apart everything that makes Ukraine function as a nation state. And when the nation collapses, the support of the military collapses as well. Um, and meanwhile, we're, while Ukraine's getting weaker and weaker and weaker, you, NATO's running out of things to give them. You know, there's nothing left to give. We've given it all. We're at the we're at the state right now. We're going to Cyprus, Cyprus, and we're bribing the Cypriots and saying, "Hey, all that old uh, Soviet gear you guys got, we'd like to buy it because we want to send it to Ukraine. So we'll give you new Western gear." Um, we're scouring the world because we can't give them the new stuff. How do you train a Ukrainian on the Leopard tank? I mean, there's a lot of talk right now about giving them the you know the Germans give them the Leopard tank. Really? Who's going to maintain it? Yeah. Um, this is big pro question. What do you do with the ammunition? Because the Russian ammunition ain't compatible with the German tank. So now we bring in the German tank. Um, do we bring in all sorts of specialized ammo? What happens if the Russians hit that ammo dump? All the German ammo goes up. You have a German tank, no ammo. What's that called? Often. Um, you know, so the stupidity of trying to mix and match all this different um equipment is, is beyond me. So that's why they're going out and trying to acquire the old Soviet equipment, but they're running out of places that have Soviet equipment. One place that does is, um, is Egypt. So we're trying to get the Egyptians to play ball, dip into their old uh, stockpiles. Israel has a whole bunch of uh, captured, you know, T-55, T-64, T-72 tanks. Um, so we're, we're, we're doing that, but at some point in time, there's nothing going to be left. And then what? And that's where we're at right now. There's no more artillery. <laughs> we produce, I don't, I, again, I just, I, I forget what the number is, 75,000 rounds a year of 155 millimeter artillery. Why? Well, because we don't fight wars. Desert Storm, my conflict. The entire conflict, 60,000 rounds were fired. And I, 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 I came from an artillery unit. I wasn't with them in the war, but I know the guys that were there. And they were like, man, we're firing every day, fire mission all the time, boom, 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 best thing in the world, best thing in the world, 60,000 rounds. Russians fire 60,000 rounds in one day, one day. One day. So we, we, we produce 75,000 a year. We've given the Ukrainians our entire stock, 250,000 rounds. And now we're in a position where we have to actually, we're, we're letting out right now to find people who can build artillery rounds so that we can begin increased production, not to help the Ukrainians, but to build up our own wartime stocks. If North Korea went across the border right now, we'd be, you know what, because in addition to maybe dying by nuclear 
radiation and, and, and blast. They have all sorts of artillery and all sorts of ammunition. We got no more ammunition. So you got all those army turds up front saying, okay, M777, boom, boom, fireman. We don't got anything that goes boom anymore. Um, we're out of boom. And when you're out of boom, you die. Uh, we're out of boom. We don't have high Mars missiles. We gave them all away. We don't have 155 middle rear rounds. We gave them all away. We got nothing. If we go to war, we can fight for about two weeks and it's all over. Mr. Bennett, what are your thoughts? Well, an extra, an excellent commentary, of course, there were several things that came to mind. Uh, number one, Medvedev has said that Israel is, is destroying all of its ties and connections to Russia by its actions of participating against Russia in this conflict. So that's very interesting. Russia has hitched its horse to the walking zombie retard Joe Biden and the globalists in, in the European Union. And uh, it, Israel, of course, wants to relocate part of its Kazarian operation over to Ukraine. It's, it's going to lose this bet. That's interesting. We've already talked of Saudi Arabia's realignment. All of uh, Russia, you know, Scott said, uh, among many other things, uh, Russia's kinetic superiority is, is very apparent. But however, the other thing that I always look at in this mathematical equation of strategic psychological warfare is diplomatic information, military and economic. Military is we've got covered, but the diplomatic and the informational, all of these, uh, uh, all of this weaponry uh, that Russia has is far superior. It has the moral momentum. It has the biochemical labs, legal presentation and documents that are indicting of war crimes and crimes against humanity for the United States participation in, in the biochemical labs in Ukraine. The European continent peoples, and they are all different tribes and nations. I was born in Scotland. I know the difference between a Scot and an Irishman and an Englishman and a Welshman and a Swede and a Norwegian and a Finn and, a, and all of them. They're not European. They're all independent uh, tribal historical personalities and cultures. Ursula von Leyen and the German Fourth Reich has tried to create this European super state, but it is, going, it is failing right now. It is destined to fail. It is withering. It is deflating because hearts and minds and, and, the, and the, the love of, of self and country and tribe and tradition, that's all that matters. You're not a European. You're a, you're a Scotsman or you're a, you're, you're, a, you're a Dane or something like that when the, when the rubber meets the road. Uh, Ursula and, and Soros and Klaus Schwab, they hate that. Uh, so the diplomatic uh, you know, population unrest is rising and in the United States as well, because we are, you know, as Ukraine gets weaker, we are sort of like a colonoscopy bag. We're attached to Ukraine. As Ukraine deflates, we deflate. As they weaken, we weaken. Europe is weakening. So people sense this, this uh, osmosis of deterioration where the political and the military and the economic are all being tied and people feel their blood draining out and they are getting into fear mode and anger mode and fury and they're rising up in the in Czech, in Italy, in Sweden and elsewhere in Germany. You and, and all over you have thousands and thousands of people rising up and rallying. That's only going to get more militant, violent, furious, eloquent, articulate, surgically accurate. Uh, it's going to translate into overreaction by the police state. And that's, you already see it in, in uh, some of these areas where the Dutch farmers were being shut down because 
the global climate change religious zealots led by the mongoloid girl, uh, what Greta Van Thurnberg or whatever her name is. Uh, and Tucker did a great talk about her mentally deranged little girl. Uh, and the more mentally deranged Europeans that worship this, you know, little mongoloid retard. Well, uh, all of that, they're not backing down from it. It's amazing psychologically to look at these people and think you are so delusional in your own worship of we will get off all fossil fuels and we will be so virtuous. And it's like your people are dying. What's more important, virtue and your own narcissistic mirror, mirror on the wall? Who's the most climate change of them all? versus how many Germans and Dutch and everybody else are freezing, burning horse manure, eating bugs because of your, we are off climate change. This religious uh, obsession translated into the climate change policy on top of this war and the sanctioning of Russia, stopping all of the fuel and gas that is literally causing civilization to wither and dry up and shrink you're going to have a battle of the bulge pushback, a pendulum swing of violent proportions. Uh, you know, they're, they're, they may try and of course disrupt the American political elections here because they know they'll be annihilated politically. They may, you and I've talked about before, Mike, they're gonna probably suspend the elections. They're, I've said they're probably gonna assassinate Biden and Harris, swing in Nancy Pelosi, swing in Gavin Newsom and think that they can do a martial law situation. America is one inch away from complete civil war because of all the other things that they're doing, LGBT this and homosexuality to your children and transgenderism and, and open borders. There, there is massive attack on America and our fundamental values, this, this war in Ukraine and the, and the shutting down of, of fuel and fertilizer and gas that is literally killing people 15,000 businesses in Germany shut are shutting down that will never reopen this is a recipe for for massive social explosion that I don't think the globalists really understand that was one of our major failures in Iraq and Afghanistan Francis Fukuyama who was an advisor of mine when I was doing my master's degree and all these others thought oh now that the end of history is upon us, we can go around and knock down these seven countries in five years and put up little Walmarts and Starbucks and make them good little vassal states based on economic, uh, economic uh, calculations without considering the spiritual tribal variable in their decision-making process, in, the, in their choices, in their inclinations. And that Muslim uh, religion, whether it's you know, Sunni, Shia, Wahhabi, we know the differences in the tribalism, we didn't account for that, and it 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 caused all sorts of kickback and, and such. They're not they're not translating the similar European cultural ferocity that has been dormant for 50, 60, 70 years, but it's still there, and you punch through that volcanic black skin and a red fountain of passion and fury and Hitlerian sort of awakening uh, is going to happen. Remember the Treaty of Versailles. Remember the rape and pillage of the German people led to Hitler's rise because at some point they can't take it anymore. And they, they rise up to fight. That's what happened in World War II and after 1929 and Hitler coming on to power. That same thing I see happening in Europe, especially with the Nord Stream 2 uh, destruction. So the US by these morons these absolute, and I don't say that out of political animus, I just say it out of, of, of intellectual calculation and observation of Blinken 
and, and Biden and uh, uh, all of them, they have grotesquely and arrogantly uh, uh, miscalculated the Russians, miscalculated the European people, miscalculated the American people, violated and committed acts of treason by aiding and abetting the foreign uh, entry of alien invaders from other countries into the United States through the southern border for the purposes of complete political demographic shifting. Uh, and then we haven't even touched upon the COVID-19 bioweapon death jab that all scientists and doctors and calculations have determined does absolutely nothing good. It doesn't commit health in any way, shape or form. And there has been a 100,000% increase in brain strokes compared to you know, 2021 to 1990 to 2019, 100,000% uh, increase in brain stroke, 6,000% increase in Bell's palsy, 3,000% increase in myocarditis. All of this, all of this data shows us that uh, the COVID-19 vaccine is, cause, is causing massive deaths and injuries. All of these variables assembled into the calculation of political determination shows me that Russia can very easily say to the European people, you're being killed, murdered, and betrayed by your own lunatic climate change, LGBT worshiping uh, fanatics. And if you come back to sanity, Russia will turn back on your fuel, back on your gas. Let Russia and Europe be the friends that we always were and should be, except for the disruptive uh, uh, acts by the United States. And I see Europe shifting entirely back towards Russia after uh, some kind of revolution, violent uprage, or just throwing people out. You see it in Italy with the new prime minister that was elected. Uh, and on top of that, Russia is ascending to a position of, of global premiership as the head of BRICS, as the head of the Shanghai Development Corporation. China is so, sort of staying dormant, but Iran, Syria, China, all, all of these uh, uh, South American nations have also sided with Russia. All of Africa is siding with Russia, but yet the US and Europe are still like kamikazes going down this path. And uh, at the end of the day, uh, you, you could see, you know, let me end it by this. Russia has been playing whack-a-mole, like a big bear, right? Playing whack-a-mole here and there. I think we're about to see Russia turn into a rabid, snarling, mouth-frothing, raging bear that just goes like a full grizzly at 30 miles an hour with a ferocity and a, and, a, and a violence that we have never seen uh, really in the history of, of Russian, uh, Russian existence. Uh, I mean, even more than World War II. Mm -hmm. So I could see Russia saying enough and going on a full ferocious charge that could wipe out Ramstein, that could wipe out Poland, that will wipe out Ukraine, not with nuclear weapons. They don't need to go down that road, mm -hmm. but they will go we will destroy everything that is a trying to destroy us. And if you have the stomach for a fight, we'll, we will step in and show you how to fight. I see that day coming, not because Russia wants to fight, but because the U.S. is so inept and mentally delusional that we don't understand what we're doing. And I'll end mm -hmm. there. Yeah. So that excellent analysis. So uh, my, my analysis is very similar. I, uh, during the Reagan years, I was in the SEAL teams and, you know, I, I would strap on a SATAM bomb and jump it in and blow up the passes. So the, you know, nuclear bomb, so the Russians couldn't get through the passes. I, I practiced short field uh, operations so that we could, you know, come off uh, with Jeeps and shoot up all the backfire bombers so they couldn't come to the U S 
And then it all ended. Soviet Union ended. That's almost like what we're talking about, the Kazarian Mafia, the, the Nazis, basically they got taken down. So Russia's done that part. Russia has overcome that. Now the rest of the world, I believe, has to overcome that. Uh, last words, Mr. Ritter. No, I think we're looking at a, um, I mean, what I tell my daughters, and they're both you know, adults, uh, 29 uh, in grad school. I say, hey, guys, um, take it in. You're living, you're living in history. Um, this, this is a period that will be written about and talked about if we survive it hundreds of years from now. This is one of those transformational transitions where at the end of an empire, and it's a sad time to be an American because the American empire is ending. Um, you know, the, 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 the day of American supremacy is, is, reach, is, is reaching its end. Um, it doesn't mean that we're going to go away. No, it doesn't mean that we're going to stop being relevant. No, but what it means is that the American singularity that we've enjoyed since 1945, since the end of the Second World War, um, which we squandered, to be honest, in 1992 at the end of the Cold War, instead of moving in and being a global leader of a team, we decided that we didn't want a team. We were just going to be us, team us, team America. Um, well, here we are 30 years later, and this um, Vidanya Mama, uh, it's over. Uh, our economy um, it, it can't survive on its own. Um, I mean, we to show you the disparity of what's going on, you know, we, we've encouraged Europe to sanction Russian energy. Um, and then we went and blew up the Nord Stream 1 and 2 pipeline. And I'll, I'll say that's straight up. Look, the Absolutely. Swedes just came out today, and uh, the Swedes said, yeah, we, uh, we're not going to do a joint investigation with anybody because we've already done the investigation. We know who did it. And if we share this with people, then it's going to hurt us in terms of national security. So we're just shutting up. We're not going to talk about it. We're done. Because they found the debris. They know what did it, who did it, how it was done, et cetera. It was us. Um, and and so what, what's happened? Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State, comes out and says, this is instead of doing what one would normally do. I mean, look, if, if I'm supposed to be your friend, and let's say I'm in the housing construction business, and your house gets destroyed in a hurricane. And instead of coming in and going, oh, man, I'm so sorry that happened to you. God, can I help? Is there anything I can do to help? Instead, I go, yeah, okay, over here. Uh, Mike, <laughs> side. This is a great opportunity for the housing construction business. We're going to come in here. We're going to make a fortune off of the, you know, the destructive lives of so many. That's what we did, which means we're guilty. But how do we benefit? It'd be like if we came down instead of saying, hey, your, buddy, your insurance allows you to build, rebuild for this. So we're going to rebuild for that. Maybe even go under a little bit. So you got a little bit left over to, to, to come in. So we're going to help you. We're going to, we're going to take a little bit of hit on our profit margin. Now, well, it's going to cost you 10 times the amount of money of your original house to build a new house, and you have no other option because I monopolize all the construction. If you want a new home, 10 times the amount. That's what we're telling Europe. You don't want, we're not going to let you have Russian gas. You have to buy American LNG at 10 times the price. And France has just basically said, no, we can't afford it. Germany, they're shutting down businesses they can't afford. Europe is going absolutely insane, and it's going to backfire. There will be blowback. And, you know, we, we look at the, the these rules-based international order that we put in place after World War II. You know, some of the things, you know, NATO, 
anybody who thinks NATO is unified right now hasn't really taken a look at the NATO, what's going on inside NATO. NATO is deeply fractured. There's a greater chance that Germany will go to war with Poland or Turkey will go to war with Greece than there is that NATO will go to war with Russia. Yeah. Um, and if Turkey happens to fight Greece, France is going to join the side of uh, Greece, which means we now really have a nice big NATO internal uh, firefight. So NATO's fracture in the European Union. There's three currencies that make the European Union what it is, makes it viable. The, the German mark, French franc, the Italian lira. Uh, the Italians have already said, we're done with that game. You've ruined our economy. We're done. We're not going to let you play. You're not getting a free ride anymore. So that, that's what the German mark is in danger of total collapse, going from the strongest currency in Europe to the weakest currency. Why? Well, again, because of the energy. We just took out their future, their entire future road on Nord Stream. Cheap Russian gas made Germany the profit machine that it was. You take away that cheap Russian gas, Germany can't function at the level it was functioning. So it's going to become worse. The market's going to collapse. Deutsche Bank's already over leveraged on the energy field. It'll collapse. Boom. So now the mark's gone. Now you're left with the French franc. And then if you're left with the French franc, you got really big problems. And I don't mean that as somebody who hates the French. I love the French, except when I visit France in August, then I hate the French. But, the, but France, you know, the, the, the French franc has is, is got some problems um, because they can't afford it either. That's why there were so many, there's riots in the streets of Paris right now. And they're demanding a change in policies because inflation has gone through the roof because of high energy costs and everything, all because of the support for Ukraine. We allowed Europe to commit suicide over Ukraine. Now, the G7, another one of these fundamental things. What is the G7? The seven uh, most advanced uh, economies in the world. Well, by the end of this winter, you can strip away Germany. You can strip away Italy. You can strip away France. You can strip away England. We're down to the G3. <laughs> Canada, the United States, and Japan. Um, and even Japan might have some issues. My point is the G3 is nothing. Um, now, the G7 has tried to leverage its power into something called the G20. And that's supposed to be where the G7 tells the next 13 big economies how to do business. Watch the big boys, follow the big boys. We're going to show you what to do. You take the G7 out of the G20, what do you got? Bricks. Yeah. <laughs> you got bricks. And bricks ain't playing the G7 game. Bricks is saying, oh, we do it better than you are. You don't count. You're nothing. So BRICS is moving away. BRICS is now actually BRICS CA. It's you know, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, Iran, Argentina. Oh, Saudi Arabia just wanted to join. So does Tur uh, Turkey. So does everybody. Everybody wants to join the winning team. This is literally me playing pickup football on a Saturday and showing up with a sprained wrist. And they're going, no, we're playing for the other team because you suck, Ritter. You can't throw the ball anymore. Never could. But um, the point is, they're jumping ship. So BRICS is a big deal. The Shanghai Cooperation Organization, it's a big deal. Turkey is a NATO member. A NATO member just said, I want to play with that team. The Russian team, the Chinese team. I want to play with that team. We just blew up the Nord Stream 1 and 2 pipeline. What did Russia do? I said, okay, screw Germany. Hey, Turkey, that Turk Stream pipeline thing you got going. Want another one? Why don't we turn you into a money-making energy hub? And Turkey, instead of going, oh, I'm afraid of American sanctions, went, yeah, I want some of that. Let's do that. 
And that's what the world's doing right now. They're basically rejecting America. The petrodollar, it's over. Yep. The Saudis are selling their oil to China using the rial in the yuan or whatever their the renbin. Um, they're, you know, the Chinese and the Indians are working with the rupee and the renbin. The Russians are doing everything in rubles. And they're saying, why don't we create a new reserve currency? Now, why would you want to create a new reserve currency when the dollar is treated so well? Well, it hasn't. You see, second you touch a dollar, then U.S. sanctions come into play because the U.S. Congress has come up with a legal structure that says anything that touches a dollar around the world, we get the sanction because it's American dollar through the SWIFT banking system. So anybody does something we don't like, we sanction them. Even though it's unlawful in international law, we do it. The world is tired of that. Now you're Russia. You had $700 billion in sovereign wealth fund, $700 billion with a B in sovereign wealth fund in different reserve banks. What did we do? We stole it all. We just went and said, that's ours now. That's theft. Even Janet Yellen, you know, the treasury for, well, that's illegal, but we're going to do it anyways. So now if you're the rest of the world, you're sitting there looking at going, they just stole $700 billion. Like they did in Venezuela. My $20 billion worth anything anymore? And the answer is no. You can't trust the United States ever again to do anything again. So there will be a new international currency. And when that happens, the petrodollar deflates, our dollar deflates. And we're going to go through some rough times. That's what I try to tell my kids. Uh, this is going to, you know, that old Chinese curse. May you live in interesting times. We are being cursed every day. But rather than fear it, watch it. Learn it, live it, because you are living in one of the most important times in modern history. The great geopolitical pivot that's about to take place away from American singularity to global multipolarity uh, is happening as we speak. And hopefully we can survive it. Fantastic. <laughs> Mr. Ritter, how can people reach you if they want to? Well, go to the highest mountain, build a fire, take a wet blanket, <laughs> and... Uh, no, I'm joking. Uh, I was I was kicked off of Twitter, so that used to be a good way. Um, mm. Right now, Telegram is uh, the best thing. If uh, everything I write and everything, for instance, if I, if you send me a link to, to this, yes. put it on the Telegram page. Okay. Um, so it's just Scott Ritter at Telegram. Uh, someday I'll become more sophisticated with uh, social media, and I'll have a more sophisticated way. But I'm a Marine, so you really got to keep it simple. One moving part. <laughs> wow. You know, uh, what you just shared was way beyond, you know, anyone I've ever interviewed, except for Mr. Bennett. Mr. Bennett, how can people reach you? Uh, well, let me just add, Scott Ritter has an excellent YouTube page, too, the Scott Ritter mm. Show, so Google him there. People can go okay. to my website, shellgamewhistleblower.com, and email me through there. I would only add one thing to Scott's uh, excellent presentation, and that is we are now bringing ISIS into Ukraine. So there's a diplomatic defeat for the United States and Europe mm. when the Russians expose you're bringing in your same ISIS mercenaries that you used in uh, you know, Afghanistan, Syria. Right. Now you've got them in Ukraine and everything you've told your own people is a lie. You are financing and paying these Wahhabists that are caught on camera and interviewed. And they are saying they're being paid by NATO dollars, American dollars to fight against Russia. The same people that we've said we've been hunting and destroying so we're, we're losing every moral argument. And, you know, that, that's, that's going to be the key thing to, to, to watch is our absolute implosion of any moral superiority. And, of course, the whole social reengineering agenda 
that America and wokeism has tried to force upon the world is another reason the world is completely rejecting the unnatural, hedonistic, sexual schizophrenic uh, ideology of, of self-ruin that the United States and these Europeans have been, have been fanatically trying to push on the rest of the world. Putin said that in his speech. They have lost their minds through wokeism, uh, transgenderism, and, and all of that sexual, uh, you know, surgical replantation. That is, uh, that is the definition of insanity, and that's what the West has become. So I just wanted to put that ISIS component in there. But it's always an honor to be with you, uh, Michael Jaco, and of, short, of course, Scott Ritter. I'm very glad that we've got, uh, you know, patriots of your caliber, because it should give people hope that there are intelligent, loyal, American-loving military patriots that have the experience and the skills and the intelligence to be diplomatic and to be leaders, to be interfaces for the other nations and leaders of the world to say, we represent the best of America and we will return America to reflect our values and our character, not the garbage that currently occupies Washington, D.C. Yeah. And, and just on what we were just talking about as far as like the uh, Wahhabists coming in to, uh, you know, fight the war in Ukraine, being invited in. Uh, when I was in uh, Yemen, there were Nazi symbols on walls there. And I was like, what is that? And then I did the research. And of course, Hitler had his own uh, uh, Islamic uh, units. Yeah. Uh, so it, it all, it's still happening. So gentlemen, thank you so much. This has been uh, an incredible uh, event. You know, all, the three of us, we basically annihilated these guys. <laughs> we came in and <laughs> slaughtered them. Uh, it was, it was uh, un unbelievable. I'm, I'm so thankful for you guys. So thanks. Thanks a lot. And look forward to uh, seeing you guys in the future, talking more of this stuff. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to Unleashing Intuition Secrets, the podcast. Until next time, stay in the love vibration as you continue your journey to become the master of your reality.